0: Identity, Lover of God Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Sermon of the Third Sunday of Epiphany, January 24th, 2021 from Christ Church, Jerusalem. In some of our contexts, our identity is boiled down to what we do for a living. Instead, our identity should be in God and our discipleship in Jesus Messiah. It's not what we do that makes us dear to the Lord, but rather how we love Him. Canon Daryl Fenton challenges us to break up the hard places in our hearts and return in love to the Lord who loves us. Are you blessed by our teaching audio? Do you watch our sermons on YouTube? We're so glad to have you walking through these difficult days with us. Let us know you are watching or listening by sending a message on Facebook or by making a donation. If you are in the U.S., please give through cmj-usa.org slash donate and select Christchurch. If you are outside of the U.S., please give at christchurchjerusalem.org slash donate. Toda rabah.
1: Now, on to the lectionary readings. The first reading is taken from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 3, verse 19. I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like sons and give you a desirable land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me, but like a woman unfaithful to her husband. So you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A cry is heard on the barren heights and weeping and pleading of the people of Israel because they have perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, faithless people, I will cure you of backsliding. Yes, we will come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Surely the idolatrous commotion on the hills and mountains is a deception. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. From our youth, shameful gods have consumed the fruit of our father's labor their flocks, their herds, their sons and daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our disgrace cover us. We have sinned against the Lord our God, both we and our fathers. From our youth till this day, we have not obeyed the Lord our God. If you will return, O Israel, return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, And if in a trustful, just, and righteous way you swear, as long as the Lord lives, then the nations will be blessed by him, and in him they will glory. This is what the Lord says to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground. Do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you men of Judah and people of Jerusalem, or my wrath will break out and burn like fire. Because of the evil you have done, burn with no one to quench it. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Amen. The second reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become, become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. This is the word of the Lord.
3: The Gospel reading this evening is taken from the Apostle Mark in the first chapter, beginning at the 14th verse. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. The gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, give us the grace to hear your call. Send your spirit into our hearts, into our intuitions, our deepest selves, and quicken that kind of spiritual hearing so that we can listen for your call and hear it. And then when we have, we pray, by your Spirit, give us the power to respond fully and become ones who were called of you to do your bidding in this dark and evil world. All this we ask in the name of the one who redeemed us, who bought us with the price, Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. It was in another century and another life for me, As I recall, it was the summer of 1999. City center, Copenhagen. We, that is a colleague and myself, had just finished a really delightful business dinner. I think it was in a former palace. I was setting up a a partnership with a Scandinavian company for my client in London. We finished dinner. And being summer in Scandinavia, the the days were still very long. And our host had to excuse himself because uh, he had another appointment. And so the two of us wandered the streets. Let me tell you, Copenhagen is far less romantic than I imagined it. You know, Tivoli Gardens and all that. It's really very modern and very, very flat. One thing, however... Uh, Stuck forever in my memory, we happened on a cemetery. I don't know about you, but I like to wander around in cemeteries. There's a fabulous one in Paris. But this one, well, it wasn't that it looked so strange. It's just that when you stopped and looked at the headstones, you saw things like Jens Jensen, born 1920, died 1990, architect. That was it. No family, no scripture verse, architect, nothing. And most of the gravestones in the cemetery were just like that. A life was just a career, a total life only remembered as a job. Now, to be fair, we Americans and a few other cultures around the world have to be careful being critical of this mindset. I mean, after all, it's we who say to our children, What are you going to be when you grow up? And we're the ones when we meet somebody less than one minute into the conversation are telling them what we do. Or we go to a party or a gathering where we don't know anybody. What do we first do to identify ourselves? Uh, We talk about what we do. But in one way or another, every culture has a version of the Danish preoccupation we individuals, to a degree at least, derive our identity from what we do. Are we a chambermaid? Well, we know we're pretty low on the social scale. Are we a professor? Well, we'd assume we're fairly high up, you know. And if they're honest and a politician, he or she will know they're probably at the bottom of the scale. In the not-too-distant past, we referred to many kinds of work as callings. They were particular kinds of work, work done by people who served others. And we religious people were especially prone to using the word calling. We came by the habit, honestly, through texts like the ones that we just heard. But frankly, today's texts are not really about having a job. So take a Bible if you have one with you, or one on your phone, or you have one at your coffee table, wherever you're sitting, from wherever you're tuning in to being with us tonight. And let's take a look. Uh, I think we'll do this part pretty quickly at the first, at, at the gospel reading you just heard me read. It's, uh, the event is familiar. All four gospel writers handled it. The calling of the disciples. But Mark's version is particularly terse. It's almost stark. A quick invitation from Jesus while he's out for a stroll around the Sea of Galilee. And four fishermen. They just up sticks and follow. I mean, yes, the invitation was evocative. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Although, actually, there probably was some background. John's gospel gives us a little hint of what it might have been. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 35 of John. I'll read this to you. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked by, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, translated, Teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and remained with him that day. That was about the tenth hour. I think that's four o'clock. john the baptist recommendation a long day spent with jesus that may be the background for why these four disciples were so quick to follow jesus but we don't know what we may miss however is what mark's readers and john's readers would have understood about what it meant to follow jesus what it meant to be a disciple of somebody the hebrew word is tal medin the disciple. It had a clear and understood meaning in the culture. A disciple was called by his future master. It wasn't a consumer choice. Not everyone was was accepted. And while Jesus eventually offered discipleship to the world, he was certainly not just offering Bible classes and daily devotions. There's a story. I think it's an okay story for a sermon. It's often told here in Israel, and it's from the Talmud, the Jewish commentaries, about a very famous Jewish rabbi named Akiva. Akiva served as the chief rabbi of Jerusalem shortly after uh, Jesus' death and resurrection and was there for the fall of the temple and escaped. He had lots of disciples and was famous for his teaching there's one story about him. You see, Rabbi Akiva married very late in life. And on his wedding day, he retired, as brides and grooms do, to the wedding chamber, the bridal chamber. But curiously enough, sometime during the night, he heard this noise. And the noise was under the bed. So he lit his lamp, thinking, is it a snake, a rodent? Got down on his knees and looked under the bed, And there was his disciple, Avi. And he said, Avi, what are you doing under the bed? This is my wedding night. Why are you in my chamber? And Avi said, Master, I follow you. I'm your Talmud. I need to learn how you do everything. It's probably not true. But I think it offers the appropriate lesson. And it can be useful. That what is true... His disciples who committed to study with the rabbi also sought to mimic his character. In our words, they learned his worldview, learned what he would say in a situation, and sought to conform their habits and character to look just like his. It wasn't simply believing what he taught at most that was merely a first step. So what should we take from this text? What's required in Jesus' case to be a disciple, to be a Talmud? For both John the Baptist and Jesus, the first response was always repentance. And I should add that meant learning to live out that repentance through future holiness, righteous living, a future habit of holy living. And secondly, and perhaps even more, finding one's identity as a disciple of Jesus. You might remember this from David's sermon last week, that we're, if we're a disciple, to attach ourselves to Jesus. In fact, he should be the one to whom we are most attached. And The question comes for me and for you, are we first and foremost a disciple of Jesus? Are we attached to Him? Do we really know Him? Do we find our primary identity in Him? Or is there some other identity we prefer? Accomplished professional, wealthy businessman, member of some political party or some particular denomination, maybe even successful pastor or honored bishop. Is your main objective in life, is my main objective in life, becoming more like Jesus? Or is it something else? Now, as far as Scripture is concerned, that's the primary calling on anyone's life. But there's another kind of calling in the kingdom of God. It's It matters, but it's secondary. I heard about it in today's epistle, that letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church, the congregation in Corinth, in Greece. And he put this calling into perspective for us. And I'm going to turn back to there from where Kateri read and remind us of what it said, at least how it started and how it ended. 1 Corinthians chapter 17, verse chapter 7, beginning at the first, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at the 17th verse. But as God has distributed each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain or instruct require this in all my churches. Then he goes on to explain, but he concludes with this kind of ringing statement. Brothers and sisters, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Now, we probably have to take a little closer look at that because it's a little confusing to me, clearly not in the same state we were called in terms of being sinful. He's referring, I think, to something close to the modern heart, what we're doing. He gives two examples. The first one is circumcision. Now, all men, whether they're in this room or around the world, um, are or aren't circumcised. And most of us being Gentiles, if we are, the choice wasn't ours. It might have been our parents. It might have been a doctor at least in some eras, for health hygiene reasons. But for Paul's Jewish listeners, it was a matter of identity, of pride, of what they believed. It was their badge of honor that they belonged to God. And as you may know, some of his readers believed it was required if one was to be a disciple of Jesus. But there were other disciples, Gentiles, of whom there were many in that congregation in Corinth. They were concerned that they had to get circumcised, become Jewish, in order to become a disciple of Jesus. And they were wrong. The book of Acts records why. A decision made by the elders of the movement, guided by the Holy Spirit, that the, uh, the requirements of Jewish identity the ones that were liturgical, one might say, were not required to follow Jesus of Gentiles. It was okay for a Jewish person to remain in some of those practices to identify themselves as Jewish. It wasn't forbidden. But Gentiles didn't have to do it. It wasn't that important, said the Apostle Paul. Nothing like following Jesus was. The requirement for becoming a disciple of Jesus, to repent of sin, to declare publicly that your life was under his authority and his alone, and that through him you understood you were reconciled to God the Father. It may not seem relevant, this the circumcision thing, but I think it is. At the moment, the Christian world is full of people who think that there are other things they must do in addition to Jesus. To being a real disciple. We see here, and Gentile Messianic believers who show up on our door, they think they need to wear a prayer shawl and a kippah, which by the way, a kippah, it's only about 200 years old as a practice, and they need to blow chauffeurs and act Jewish in order to be Jesus' disciples. Oh, but there are other expressions. There are people who think there's only one way to worship, or only one kind of worship music, and in our church, there are some folks who think worship, a worship service has to be very, very formal. Others who think that's too stuffy, it really must be very, very casual. It doesn't matter. Oh, and yes, there's that thing, that best thing of all, you know, that the best Christians have a religious calling. They're missionaries, they're preachers, or in some churches, they're monks. You know what? That's not what the Scriptures say, but we'll come back to that in a moment. Those extras might be helpful. They could give us perhaps some better devotion if they they fit us, if we like hymns better than worship songs or whatever. But they're not required to answer the Lord's call. His call, remember, does not come from inside us. It comes from Him to us. It's not determined by our qualifications or our abilities. He calls us, and he knows if it is him we want or something simply for ourselves. And of course, eventually, as he said, it shows up in the fruits by which we are known. Paul said we don't need the extras. Now his second example comes closer to the quick of it all. Because in a modern context, it has to do with how we make a living, the career we choose. He refers to bondservants. Now, in Rome and throughout many of the Gentile cities of the Roman Empire, bondservants were the booty of military campaigns that were won. Soldiers, generals got to take them home as slaves. But they were not like slaves, as Americans think of African-American slaves. They were not just workers, though some were servants. Some were doctors. Others were lawyers. Some accountants. Some educational tutors. Some wise men who were understood as sages in their own countries. And very often they continued to do that work in the employ, that is, the bondservant nature of their master. Paul says... Don't worry about it. It's not that important. The primary call of being Jesus' disciple is far more important even than being a slave. Now, don't misunderstand. He said right away, if you can get out of it, do it. He says in other parts of the New Testament, slave, free, Gentile, Jew, male, female, none of this matters to God. As John said later in a letter, God is no respecter of persons. Paul even twisted the arm of his disciple Philemon, saying, Onesimus, who's also a believer, and is your brother, should be released by you. But his point was bigger than that. His point was that even slavery in this life, slavery in this life is temporary, but in the kingdom of God, life is eternal. And being what God calls us to be first, attached to Jesus, identified with Jesus, bearing witness to his kingdom, is more important than what we do. What's the lesson for us we should be aware of linking the perceived importance of our work to our sense of value to use that tired word of this last century our self-esteem our modern preoccupation with what we do that what we do makes us valuable is actually a lie just like those tombstones in copenhagen it is if you believe scripture not so important to the Lord. Paul was clear, it's not so much what we do that makes us beloved to the Lord, but how much we love him. How do we express that? Worship, obedience, fulfilling what he wants to be done in the world, doing his purposes, spending time with him. When's the last time you spent an hour on your knees with him? In quiet, listening for his voice. Pleading for those who you know don't know him. Pleading maybe for your children. Listening just for what he'd say to you. um, And doing what brings him pleasure. What do you do for someone you love? You please them, don't you? But maybe the lesson we should most need to hear in our time is the, uh, the lesson that Paul was making crystal clear. We're bought with a price. That's what's important. God will make just as good of use of, of a farmer as he will of a bishop. He'll make just as good use of a mechanic as he will of a missionary. Let me see if I can illustrate this from my own life. I grew up in a very religious home. Didn't finish college, at least till much later in life. Went to work in a restaurant in Chicago. I was there 14 years. But I'd always sensed that somehow what I was wasn't enough. You know, if I just did something for God, I'd be better. You see how backwards that was? Eventually, the Lord used it. We planted a church in the restaurant in the center of Chicago. But if I look back now, you know, if I'd not been working in that restaurant, seeing hundreds of people, thousands of people every day, Shandor and his wife would not have been reconciled. Muhammad would not have been comforted when he came with MS to work and had to quit. Dozens and dozens of other people would not have heard about Jesus because I wouldn't have been there to share it with them. You see, the calling of those who work in the world is the front line of the gospel. And those of us who do what I do now, we're not more important, we're not better, and we're not more valuable to the Lord. We're to remain in the calling he gave us until he calls us to do something different. You know, sometimes we religious agonize over what we're supposed to do because somehow we need more than what we think we are. We need to do something more for God. A friend of mine, when I was running a missionary business in Central Europe, said to me, he was a pastor, he said to me, why do you people always send us the folks who can't get a job in your own country? You see, they came because they wanted to be more important or somehow more valuable. God doesn't require that. He wants us to lead a life of calling to Him first. And then he'll tell us what he wants us to do. But perhaps it's our third scripture that cuts most deeply to the quick. At least it does for me. It's been a rough couple of weeks for me working on these texts. It's very necessary, I think, for our time in the church, universal, the believing church as we know it. It's recorded in today's reading that Carol read for us from Jeremiah chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. And it describes this third call, one that is so important, I think, unless we heed it, it can render all the other calls useless. In words that disciples of another more agricultural century would have understood easily, the text says, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. And also, for a different era, era, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your hearts. What does that mean? But it's a prophecy of warning, a prophecy of danger, a prophecy of love and longing, a prophecy with three warnings for us in this time who consider ourselves to be disciples of Jesus. First of all, the prophecy was for God's people. It wasn't for people outside his kingdom. It wasn't for the Gentiles, it was for the Jews. Therefore, it wasn't for disciples of Jesus. It was for disciples, it is for disciples of Jesus, and it isn't for those outside in the world, as we used to say. The Lord, as you'll remember, had continued to protect Judah, even though the northern king, northern kingdom had fallen to the Assyrians because of their sin. And since that falling, all the, all the lands around Judah, had fallen first to the Assyrians, and then when the Babylonians rose to power, all came under Nebuchadnezzar's abusive power, except, except Judah. Josiah, Hezekiah, the righteous, repentant kings of Israel, had kept God's hand of protection on Judah. This was Jeremiah's time, just before about 600 B.C., before that great, awful siege that ended the kingdom of Judah and began the Babylonian captivity. These were religious people that kept the, kept the temple going perfectly. All the liturgies were done precisely right. But you know, we may need a little more than that. And so we'll go up on this hilltop and we'll raise an Asherah rod, so that we make sure we have children and our crops are fertile. And you know, we can include a little temple prostitution with that. You know, and we we can be concerned for our crops and we can pray that Baal will bless us, make sure we have nice houses, that we're secure, that we don't have to worry too much about the people who are poor because we're sure that they aren't so important. And we don't have to worry about the Gentiles either, of course, because they're our enemy. And then when we're really frightened, we'll go down over this hill behind us here in Jerusalem and we'll burn our firstborns as an offering to God moloch so we don't get overtaken by the evil one and then you know we'll go back home to the temple and say to the lord you know this is this temple here we know that means that we're safe and nothing will happen now jeremiah says you know what god thinks of that yeah it's it's like a wife feels when she finds out that her husband has a few mistresses when his real love and attention isn't on her but he just wants a safe place to come home to. Or similarly, for a wife who finds other lovers. The reason I know that's the way in which God put it is just before the the passage that that we heard read, that Carol read, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2, this is what Jeremiah reports to the people of Israel, of Judah, that God is saying to them, I remember you the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal. When you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown, Israel was holiness to the Lord. And later, as we heard, he laments that they've departed him and become unfaithful. And we know where it went. We know that that faithlessness continued. And the wrath that God, spoken of, that God had spoken of came because he withdrew his hand of protection over Judah. And she fell. And she suffered. And she lived in destruction and anger and sorrow for nearly a century until she began to repent and return to him. That's what brought us to that last appeal Jeremiah was making to Judah for how they could keep that hand of protection upon them. And he says, Break up your fallow ground. Do not plant among thorns. Anybody here a farmer ever? Okay, fallow ground. This text was used by preachers of my childhood to great powerful effect for repentance. And they were accurate. But it was the repentance of God's people that Jeremiah was talking about, because they'd gotten so used to all these other things. They just wanted to come home to him and make them safe. But they didn't really want to love him or know him. And so their hearts became like ground that is left unplanted, unplowed, and untended. The weeds grow up, their roots go down, the soil becomes hard, Even rain takes a while to get through it. And so it takes the steel blade of a plow to break it in big chunks and open it up. And even that's not enough. Only then can the weeds be pulled out. Can a harrow go through and turn it into fine soil so that the seed that is planted will grow and produce fruit. What Jeremiah is saying, of course, is that it's like a conscience with a callus, If it's not cut off, there's nothing the Holy Spirit can get through to get our attention and turn us back to the Lord who loves us. The other one is simpler. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. It's kind of squeamish language for us, though Lord knows, given everything else we hear, we shouldn't be squeamish about such a metaphor, an idea. It means simply, Become the people God meant you to be. Find your identity in him, just like the Jewish people found their identity as men and as families. One sign of their identity was circumcision. We've all read books and seen novels and movies about what that means to Jewish people, how often it was used against them by anti-Semitic Gentiles. What's the, what's the application here? Um, you know, sometimes... It falls to a preacher to say things he he wishes he didn't have to say. But the message of Jeremiah is for the church of today. We have become fallow ground. We complain about the world around us being evil. We complain we are not safe. What does Jesus say is the way in which a culture that was faithful to him stays safe, even if the world around it doesn't believe in him? It becomes salt and light because they are first and foremost committed to him. They know him. They love him. They'll carry the cross for him, and they'll go the distance for him without fear. But look at us. Look at us over these last 20, 30, 40 years. Our children stray and we don't know why. We're thought to be hateful people. Why? Because our leaders in public condemn the world while themselves being convicted of theft or pride. Preachers who care more about the size of their congregation than they do about the condition of their people's hearts. Leaders who are more concerned about their reputation in the world than they are about their reputation when they come to the throne. Now look, I'm not saying this because I think it doesn't apply to me. I'm saying it because I think it's time for us to plow up our fellow ground all over the world. If we want God's hand of protection to remain upon us, if we want still to be valuable for God's kingdom in a world that is so confused, so sin-filled and sorrow-filled, so broken that even something like COVID is hardly a concern by comparison, because it isn't eternal. It will be because we, you and me, we returned to the Lord who loves us. We responded to His call, his passionate call to return to him, to love him, to be restored to be restored to the love we once had, the affection, the attachment, the primary place in our life. That's the calling. Yes, to be his disciple. Yes, to stay where we are until he tells us to go elsewhere. But finally, most of all, to be his and his alone, his and his primarily, his, ready to do what he wants, delighted to please him. And rejoicing in his love for us. Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord, forgive us when we're faithless. Forgive us when we're distracted by our idols in this age, whether they're financial security or education or social standing, whatever it is. Oh, Lord, break up our fallow ground, penetrate our hearts with your spirit. Show us what in us is not fully committed to you and remove it so that we may know you as we first did when our first love was restored. We were delighted that you redeemed us, delighted in your grace and love for us, rejoicing in the fact that we belonged to you, finding our identity in our relationship with you. Bring us back there, Lord, so that the world sees us as disciples of Jesus, reflecting his character and his love, and his grace for all those trapped in sin, caught in sorrow, mired down in the discouragement of their own selfish rebellion. Give us the offer of love and grace, holiness and righteousness, joy and eternal life that comes through knowing him and through becoming like him. All this we ask in his redeeming name. Amen.